Well, good evening. How are you? Good. It's good to see you guys tonight. I, uh, I'm not sure, but I think with the weight we've got over here, the sanctuary may kind of tip over, so y'all just be careful on that side, all right? Um, it's good to see you guys tonight. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, this is a unique service for us, and, uh, and we're really what we're after is just focusing on the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, Sunday is a joyous day, and, and honestly, we, you know, we worship each week on Sundays because Christ rose on the first day of the week, and so that's why that happened you know, in Acts, to begin meeting on the first day of the week, and so, um, so really each Sunday we're celebrating the resurrection, and each Sunday we're preaching the cross, right? I mean, so in many ways, what we do this weekend is not drastically different from what we do every weekend, uh, praise God. Um, but it certainly comes with an extra emphasis, right? It's, it's kind of like Christmas time in the sense that your senses are heightened toward what's going on, right? You, you're thinking a little bit about uh, Good Friday and, and the goodness of the Friday and then really the tragedy of the Friday, that, that blood had to be shed. And so tonight as we do this, we've got songs that are, that are queued up for us to worship with that hopefully are somewhat familiar to you. Um, most of them are hymns, and they're reflecting on the, the cross of Christ, His crucifixion, His death, His, the ransom that He's paid for us, the salvation we have in Him alone. And, and so tonight, that's what we're here for. And we'll receive communion toward the end of the service tonight. Um, but I invite you to, to reflect on the Lord, to think on Him, to remember the cross, uh, to praise Him for it. Uh, by it, we are we're saved. Amen. There, there's been a, a propitiation made for our sins. There's been a payment made for our sins. And so uh, I'm going to begin tonight. I'm, I'm going to read Isaiah 53, and then I'm just going to pray for us. Um, but the, the, the words will be on the screen behind me here, and you can just kind of read along, not out loud, but just kind of follow along as I'm reading this, uh, hopefully to help kind of center our mind on the suffering servant. So here we have a prophecy some 700 or so years before Christ walked the earth talking about the death of Christ, prophesying that, that the Messiah would come, that he would suffer, uh, and that by him many could be redeemed. Many could receive righteousness. And so uh, let's read this, verse 1 here. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us 
peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, and yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away, and as for His generation, who considered Him that I'm sorry, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Amen. Tonight, brothers and sisters, we worship Christ because he has borne our griefs, he has borne our sorrows, he has borne our iniquities, and by him we have new life. Amen. Let me pray for you, and then we'll stand and we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of your Son, Jesus. That suffering servant, the one whom there was no deceit in his mouth, there was no sin within him. And yet, Father, he, the eternal Son of God, he became like us in birth. He became fully human, yet fully God. He put away the the comforts of heaven so that he might take on the cross as a sacrificial lamb slain for our iniquity, that we might live forevermore. Father, tonight we, we consider the cross. We consider the guilt that was rightfully ours and yet laid upon your son Jesus. And it's with worship tonight that we approach your throne. It's with hearts of gratitude. God, we don't come shamefully before you. We come gratefully before you. We know that our sin is gross, that our sin is disgusting, that our sin demands death. And it is our Savior who received death in our place. We praise you, Father, for Christ. I praise you, Lord, for the the work of him, the work of your grace the work of your mercy that we have in the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be fortified in our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we love you. Jesus, we thank you 
for your death and for your resurrection. We thank you for bearing our iniquities, for taking the wrath of God on yourself, that we might be free from sin forever. Holy Spirit, we ask you now to enlighten our hearts, to strengthen us during the service, to plant deep gospel roots in us that would bear fruit from generation to generation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this evening? We're going to worship together. Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the Chosen One Bring many sons to glory shoulders ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished his But this I 
Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 19. All right. Thank you, sir. We'll look at John chapter 19 tonight, uh, briefly anyway. Uh, here at the, the end of the book of John, we have the, an, an account of the crucifixion, at least John's account of the crucifixion. And, uh, and so I want us to look at that tonight and make just a few observations about what the crucifixion reveals uh, for us. And, uh, and so let me just read to you John 19, I'll, I'll read 16 through 22 to start. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. And so it went out, this message went out to everyone in the area. And so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews would have thought this is a necessary distinction because they're not going to want to be responsible for crucifying the king of the Jews, but rather they crucified him because by their estimation, he was blasphemous. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I like his response. These first few verses that we look at here in this passage, they they reveal to us the humiliated king. Here we see a humiliated king, and and we've missed some of the passage about his, what led up to the crucifixion, the things that he endured on the way to the cross. But what would have happened is when he was delivered to the soldiers to be crucified, the soldiers would have taken him and scourged him. This was known as the Roman verbiato. It's the most horrible kind of beating. This scourging was often called the halfway death because you were halfway there by the time it was over. Jesus would have been on his knees, hands tied down. He would have been whipped with the deadly flagrum, which is a whip made of multiple leather strands with bone and metal attached to it, meant for tearing the skin, especially the skin on the back, which would be up against the cross as a man hung on it. After the scourging, they would have made Christ, they did make Christ, carry His cross. It's the customary action of a Roman crucifixion is to have to carry your cross. Why? 
Well, if you parade around a man who has broken the law of Rome, you're less likely to have people break the laws of Rome, right? You, you advertise his punishment. You advertise his crucifixion. And so it would have been a parade of sorts. They would have taken the long route just so that more could see, more could be warned against breaking the laws of Rome. Upon arriving at the place of a skull, the Golgotha, Christ would have been laid on the crossbeam. His hands would have been quickly nailed into the cross. Then he would be raised up and his feet would be dangling until the soldiers drove a nail through both feet, leaving him just enough flex in his knees to begin the horrible up and down motion necessary for breathing. That is, with whatever strength you can muster, uh, you remove that asphyxiation for a moment as you propel yourself upward by whatever strength is left in your legs for as long as you can. You can imagine this would be hard to do when you can't breathe correctly. And as horrifying as all of that is, and, and it, it is horrifying, This is nothing compared to the moment where our sins were poured out on Him. And in that moment, He experienced a separation from the Father that He had never known before. And this is significant because the Son had always, from eternity past, been in perfect harmony with the Father, even to this place now. I recall the moments of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before He's arrested, and He's praying, Lord, if it be Your will, or Father, if it be Your will, take this cup from me. Nothing is impossible for You, but nevertheless, not my will, Your will be done. Christ was committed, committed to obeying His Father, committed to the redemption of mankind, committed to being that suffering servant that we started the service reading about. And so he humbled himself. That's what Philippians 2 tells us, that he humbled himself, taking on the form of man, that he gave up the the glories of heaven to become like us so that he could die on a cross so that we may be saved from our sin. And so the King of kings was crucified. It's not merely the King of the Jews. This is the King of kings who goes to the cross. And Pilate's inscription that was put on the cross was meant to incite anger for the Jews. Like he's meaning this to to make them angry because he was a bit upset by the whole thing. If you remember, he washed his hands of this case. His blood is not on my hands, he said. He wasn't sure that Jesus had done anything worthy of a crucifixion. And so it did incite the Jews. And, and But what Pilate meant as a way to show Rome's superiority over the Jews, that we've crucified the king of the Jews, John means for us to see the true messianic king crucified for our sin, that this is the King of Kings. Pilate unknowingly became God's herald of redemption. He unknowingly is broadcasting 
to all of those in the area that this is the Messiah. And so Jesus is humiliated to the point of death. He died as the king of an otherworldly kingdom, a king from uh, the king of a kingdom that's not of this world. He died for the church. He died for his bride. He died for his body. He died so that you and I can be made pure from our sin and to enjoy eternal life with him once for all time. Amen. If you'll skip down to verses 28 and 30, there in 19, it says this. It says, after this, which is a moment where he's observing some soldiers below him casting lots for his garments, and he's seeing his mother there with some other ladies. But we get to this point now where where it says, after this, here in verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, in parentheses, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The crucifixion of Christ reveals redemption's completion. The redemption is complete. It is finished. The, the jar of sour wine is, is different. If you're familiar with the story, you, you know about the wine that was mixed with myrrh that was offered to him, which was a kind of sedative. And he's refusing anything that would make him in his physical body not feel the weight of the cross, the pain, the suffering of the cross in that moment. And this is a different moment here where this sour wine is offered for a different purpose. This wine is used to quench thirst. It's there for the soldiers who are working, and it's there for them to drink. It's their their Gatorade, if you will. The the theological significance of this moment is, is really incredible. The sour wine reminds us of the cup that the Father has For Jesus, right? If it be your will, let this cup pass from me was the phrasing that Christ used in the garden. The cup that Christ is talking about is the bitter cup of God's wrath. And and Christ, having just drank the bitter cup of God's wrath, now drinks the bitter wine. Jesus' thirst was the thirst of the Messiah. We have in Psalm 22 a a prophecy of Christ on the cross. And so much of what's written in Psalm 22 takes place, including the words that Christ says, takes place on the cross. But, But here is the psalmist in Psalm 22 writing from the point of view prophecy, this point of view of Christ, and he's saying, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet." 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they have cast lots. And so the thirst that Christ has is the thirst of the Messiah. It's the thirst of the one who is prophesied in Psalm 22. But the thirst that he has is also our thirst. Jesus became thirsty for us so that we would never thirst again. Amen? In John 4, 14, he's visiting with the woman of Samaria, and he says this to her. He says, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, as we've been going through John 3, you know that this water is is the Spirit. It's a reference to the Spirit of God that will dwell in a person, and now living water will spring up from them. But even more fascinating than maybe the sour wine and the fact that Christ is thirsty and He died to satisfy once for all our thirst, even more fascinating is the fact that the wine is raised up on a hyssop branch. If you started a Bible plan at the beginning of the year, you, you, you probably made it at least through this part of Exodus, right? By now. Where you make it through the plagues, and you remember the final plague, right, in Exodus. God says, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every household, male and animal. The firstborn male of both humans and animals, of every household. And so he instructed Moses to have the Israelites take the blood of a lamb and spread it over their doorposts. But do you know what they were told to spread it with? A hyssop branch. A hyssop branch. And if they were to do this, the the angel of death that would pass through the city that night would pass over their homes and they would be safe. And so here God is reminding us in the way that Christ is crucified and all the events of the cross, He's reminding us that Jesus Christ is the true Passover lamb. This is the true blood of the lamb which will remove death from your home forever. He's the lamb who is sent to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath toward sin. And as He wet His lips... He was able to unstick his tongue from the side of his mouth. He's able to get rid of that cotton mouth, as we call it here in the South, and able to cry out, Tete Lestai, or it is finished. But the the phrase Tete Lestai doesn't mean that something is like done then and then there's still work to do. When you say Tete Lestai, you're saying, This job is complete. So it's not like when you go to work and your boss finally says at the end of the day, all right, it's time to go home. I'll see you in the morning. This is like when you complete a project at work and it's done for good. All right, tete lestai. You have have finished the project once and for all. It will always be finished. It will never be undone. This is the, the beauty of the cross. Jesus completely finishes the work 
that the Father commanded him to do. And because Jesus cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, you and I now get to cry out, hallelujah, and receive his spirit. Amen? We get to be born again, born anew, born from above, as we've been looking at in John 3 on Sundays. Nothing more needs to be done for your salvation, not now, not ever. It is finished. If you will place your faith on the cross of Christ Jesus, on His perfect sacrifice, you will be saved. If you have, you are saved from your sins. Your debt has been paid in full. You owe nothing except your obedience to God. He he became a curse for you. He became separated from God by your sin in your place so that you would never have to know the separation of God again. And in verses 31 through 37, we get the final thing I want to look at here. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified, these criminals who Christ had been crucified with. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. This testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That's John saying, you better listen to me. I've seen this. And he says, I've written this so that you also may believe. In verse 36, we read, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, the Scriptures say. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced, which we read earlier in Isaiah 53. And so the crucifixion of Christ reveals the sinner's heart. It reveals where we are. And when we read verse 37 here, I'll read it again to you. But when we, and again, another scripture says, they will, look, they will look on him whom they have pierced. We should see a double meaning. It is prophecy fulfilled. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The crucifixion reveals the sinful hearts of man and it reveals the gracious pleas for mercy from God. That the cross is the coming together of the tragedy of man's sin and the good news of salvation to all who believe. We have at the cross of Christ the wrath of God satisfied so that the believer might be justified. 
But there's a prophecy that still remains to be fulfilled. Revelation 1.7, we read this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And when it says those who pierced Him, do you think it has in mind only the Roman soldiers who jabbed the spear into His side or drove the nails through His hands? No. It has in mind every unbeliever. Every person, really, but certainly every unbeliever who has not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their sin is not yet covered. And so the looking on him whom they have pierced and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen, John writes there in Revelation 1. So the humiliated King Jesus will return to earth as the exalted King of heaven and earth, And upon his coming, Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And when you first hear this, you might think, well, this is universalism. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses. This means that everyone must be saved, right? No. Satan recognizes that Christ is king but he's as damned as any person or angel could ever be. Some, what this verse is saying is that some will proclaim Christ as Lord to their coronation ceremony. It's a celebration of the life that they've been given by Christ their King, by Christ their slain Lamb, by Christ their Savior. And then for others... It's their condemnation committal. They're recognizing too late that Christ is the Savior. And so it's a really dark picture we get in Philippians 2. We recognize that Christ is King. He's Lord over heaven and earth. And then in the same moment, we recognize that not everyone will see this. In this passage, we see that Jesus' bones remained unbroken, and this was to to fulfill Scripture. It was customary for the Passover lamb to not have his bones broken. There was a process for how you killed the lamb, you slayed the lamb that you were going to partake of. And so Jesus died as the true Passover lamb. He died as the one who truly takes away the sin of the world. Jesus wasn't just crucified between two criminals. He was crucified for criminals as a criminal. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. There's nothing more significant on earth for us to do than to repent of our sins and to submit ourselves to the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. It will cost you your life, make no mistake. To submit to Christ is costly. It requires your life, your desires, your hopes, your dreams. But you will gain true life from Him. You will gain life that is eternal, life that is abounding with the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace kindness and patience and self-control and faith. 
may we all tonight be able to say with Paul as he writes to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20, as he's admonishing them, he's encouraging them, stand on Christ alone. And he says this, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we are so grateful for your word and your kindness toward us. Father, help us to trust in Christ. Help us to see ourselves as men and women and boys and girls. Help us to know, to know salvation in Christ and help us to see ourselves as those who have been crucified with Christ. That's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in us. God, we thank you for the life that we have received, eternal life, life that we know both right now in part and life that we will know in full when we're with you in heaven. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet tonight? We're going we're gonna to receive communion together so the ushers can go ahead and bring those elements forward. Looking around, I think most of you are familiar with how we do communion, but I'll, I'll say it quickly. We, we practice close communion here, which means as long as you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're following Him, you're not walking in unrepentant sin, um, then we invite you to take communion with us tonight. We want you to, as fellow believers, as men and women who are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so uh, in a moment, they're going to begin passing those out. And, and here's what I would ask you to do is as they're passing that out, would you, would you reflect on the cross? Would you spend time? Thank you, brother. Would you spend time in repentance? Maybe confession if you need that. Maybe there's something to commit yourself to tonight as you reflect on the cross. Or just praise, right? Just genuine, heartfelt praise that Christ did what you could never do. You could never atone for your own sins. And yet, here you stand, forgiven, redeemed, justified before God Almighty because of the work of Christ. Uh, I believe there's a, a gluten-free option in the corner of that tray marked, so you can find that if that's, if that's you. You guys can begin passing that out. We'll sing, sing together now.
Amen. When I survey the wondrous cross. Amen. In Luke chapter 22, um, we have one of the accounts of Christ in the upper room and where, where uh, the Lord's Supper gets its birth. <laughs> it says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles were with him. And he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, or took, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. He said, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the broken body of your Son, Jesus. We thank you that he became flesh, he became like us, so that he might die in our place. And as he broke that bread, he was saying, my body will be broken. I'm suffering. I'm going to suffer on your behalf. And he did it. He committed himself to it. And we, we read in your word that the reason he did that was for the joy. The reason he endured the cross was for the joy that was set before him which is redemption, the redemption of his people. And so we say thank you for the, for the body of Christ. Amen. In verse 20 here in Luke 22, it says, And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten. And he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so here's one of the significant things of this that we kind of lose in 1 Corinthians, just to be honest. 1 Corinthians doesn't, doesn't tell us about the cup that was poured into other cups that he blessed before he gave to them. But here we read about it. There was a cup that he had given thanks for. He said, take this cup, divide it among yourselves. And now he's telling them what to do with that cup as he's holding <clears throat> the original cup. Christ is saying, this is poured out for you and this is the new covenant of my blood, in my blood. Wow. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a new covenant, a covenant that is built on grace, that by the blood of Christ we have received what we absolutely do not deserve. And that is grace, it's mercy, it's salvation, redemption, 
justification. Lord, we, we are made new through your son, Jesus. And we praise you for it. We praise you for this new covenant. Lord, help our hearts to never be hardened to this, to this supper, to this moment of communion as we stand here with our brothers and sisters and we remember the cross of Christ together. And Paul says that's, a, that's exactly what this moment is. As we, as we do this, we proclaim his death until he comes. And so, Father, we thank you for Christ that he came. We thank you for Christ that he is the king of kings, that he suffered in our place, and that he is coming again. And we'll fellowship with him over a supper one day. So in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to end with one more song. It's called Crown Him. And I just couldn't think of anything more fitting to sing as we think about the death of the King of Kings and as we remember that truly He has been crowned. But may our hearts, may our lives crown Him. Amen. Amen. Would you sing with us? The humble king has come to earth From throne on high to lowly birth His glory reigns The spotless lamb was washed away our fatal sin with saving grace his glory reigns the man of sorrows crucified for love he bleeds and love he dies his glory reigns. Christ the King is Lord. Crown Him seated on His throne. Enthroned on high in majesty, His glory reigns. Behold, the gracious Lord of Life has opened ears and poured outside His glory. Christ the King is Lord, crown Him, 
this evening we remember the sacrifice that you made Lord Jesus we look forward to celebrating the resurrection to come this Sunday remembering the resurrection oh Lord Jesus our Savior we praise you and we give you all the glory forever and ever be with us as we go throughout our weekend and help us to remember you this Easter weekend. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thanks so much for coming.